Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. There's a new literature emerging now on Canada's participation in the NATO response to Afghanistan after the Al-Qaeda attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C. on September 11, 2001. Canadian soldiers were sent to Afghanistan within weeks of 9-11. They were withdrawn from combat in 2011 by the Harper government and left for good in 2014. The toll was stark. Canada lost 158 soldiers and a number of civilians during the conflict. Countless others were injured, and we don't know how many of these veterans are suffering or will suffer operational stress injuries like PTSD, among many others, until many more years to come. Canadians don't talk about heroism much. It's just something about us that refuses to trumpet the intrepid, the brave, and the courageous. But that's changing. More writers are discovering what's happened in Afghanistan, and more stories of selflessness are emerging. Craig Mantle has co-edited one of these books, and it is entitled, in their own words, Canadian Stories of Valor and Bravery from Afghanistan, 2001-2007. This was done for the Department of National Defense, while Dr. Mantle was a public servant with the Canadian Forces Leadership Institute in Kingston. He's now a historical consultant and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and we reached him at his office. Craig Mantle, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Patrice. It's uh, my pleasure entirely. Well, you're the witness to yesterday in this podcast. Tell us what happened on May 9th, 2014. Well, that was the National Day of Honour on uh, Parliament Hill. Um, The Conservative government at the time used this day to mark the end of the mission in Afghanistan. There were the traditional things that uh, one might expect, uh, a parade, a fly-past, some static displays, some speeches by, if I remember, the Prime Minister and Governor-General. At the time, I was working at the Canadian War Museum as the post-1945 historian. Uh, Also, our our book, in their own words, had just come out in 2013, so everything was still very raw, very fresh. And what made this so special for you, then? As it happened, I ran into uh, two individuals that I knew. One I had interviewed for the book, uh, Master Warrant Officer Willie McDonald, uh, who earned the Star of Military Valor, and also uh, Major John Hamilton, who had helped with a chapter about the 3rd of August uh, 2006, when four Canadian soldiers were killed in battle. After talking with them about what had happened on the hill that day, or rather what was happening on the hill that day, uh, I realized that so many other stories remained to be told. Um, in that crowd, as you would expect, uh, there were many members of the military and, the fa- and their families. Uh, I began to come to the realization that uh, that what we had done, with, in their own words, had value. Uh, we had preserved the stories of, of 23 individuals. Uh, but everyone on the Hill that day, uh, and truly everyone who served in Afghanistan, all 40,000 of them, uh, had their own story, their own experiences, their own opinions. And all those really deserved to be told. Um, not everyone had earned a decoration for, for valor or bravery, as these 23 men did that we interviewed. Um, but that didn't mean that their experiences uh, were not valuable. Craig, there's, there's, a, there's an essay published in the Literary Review of Canada last month. Uh, this was the December-January issue of uh, 2020 that made the argument that we are forgetting the war of Afghanistan very, very quickly. Before we continue with your book, is there a sense of the various phases of the war in Afghanistan in terms of Canada's presence there? How, how are we to remember the evolution of the Canadian war effort over there? 
Right. Uh, I certainly think that the nation is getting there. Uh, we we are forgetting. I would dare say that that some probably didn't even know that we were in Afghanistan while we were there for for some 13 years. Um, when I encounter people that um, I run into in my in my daily life in my in my work and mention Afghanistan, sometimes you know I am met with with blank stares, and uh, and that is that is worrisome. Um, I was reading in a, in a book a, a great quotation from, um, I think it was the U.S. Marines fighting in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. It was graffiti scrawled on the wall. It said something along the lines of, America is not at war. The Marines are at war. The United States is at the mall. Mm. And, and that really shows the, the disconnect between what was happening either in, Af- in Afghanistan or in Iraq and, and back on the home front. So, um, yes, we're forgetting, but I would suggest that, that some probably didn't even know that we were there to begin with. Yes. So let's get back let's, to, to, to help our listeners uh, recapture the various phases of the war in Afghanistan. We are there almost from the beginning. Uh, the first uh, deployments happened before the year was over in 2011, and we'll, we'll, we'll be in and out 2001, 2002. What's the next phase after that? For Canada, at least, the uh, the war lasts from 2001 to, to 2014. Uh, to put that in, into perspective, that's three First World Wars or two Second World Wars. Um, assisting the United States in, uh, in ousting the Taliban really marked the, the first stage of Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. Um, on the ground, uh, Joint Task Force 2, or JTF-2, the nation's uh, special operations forces, um, as you mentioned or alluded to, uh, landed in Afghanistan certainly by the end of uh, 2001. Uh, later in March uh, 2002, both it and the 3rd Battalion, uh, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, participated in Operation Anaconda. Um, this operation lasted for about 17 days and aimed to defeat both uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters uh, in the Shellycott Valley, where they had concentrated, um, pretty much following their, their route by American special forces uh, fighting alongside Afghan militias. Uh, not since the Korean War of the early 1950s had Canadian soldiers really engaged in deliberate offensive combat operations against a, a recognized enemy. The, uh, the second phase of, of Canada's mission in Afghanistan involved um, aiding initial reconstruction efforts. So with the Taliban's uh, quick removal from power, uh, attention quickly shifted to stabilizing the country and uh, preventing it from continuing as a failed state. Uh, they did this by uh, attempting to, to increase security and uh, establishing a new government. Uh, NATO, of uh, which Canada is a part, of course, uh, assumed responsibility for, for ISAF, or the, uh, the International Security Assistance Force, in, uh, in August of 2003. So from that date to about uh, July 2005, uh, Canada supported ISAF by contributing a uh, rotating battle group that ensured uh, freedom of movement within the city, uh, advised on matters of security and defense, uh, and also assisted with the, the reconstruction of Afghan uh, security forces. Then things changed considerably. Uh, in August uh, 2005, Canada began to gradually take over responsibility for security and redevelopment in, uh, in Kandahar province, the, uh, the volatile birthplace and heartland of the Taliban, which um, actually had experienced a resurgence uh, and again uh, represented a significant uh, danger in the south. And we, were, we, we replaced the Americans at that point in Kandahar. I believe so. Yes, we yes. did. Yeah, we, uh, we took over responsibility for, for an entire province. Right. So 
over the next five years and over multiple rotations and through many battles, both large and small, uh, Canadian personnel in Kandahar worked to create a safe and secure environment in which um, development and reconstruction could flourish. Um, this stage of the mission, which if you're keeping track is the, uh, the third, um, was by far the most dangerous, certainly witnessing um, sustained high-intensity combat operations that, uh, that resulted in the death and wounding of, of many Canadians. But uh, that eventually came to an end. Um, combat operations ceased in July of 2011. Um, and with the, the end of, of the fighting, for Canada at least, the, uh, the armed forces shifted gears yet again. Um, they left Kandahar and returned to Kabul. Mm. Uh, for the next three years or so, from uh, about mid-2011 until the end of the mission, uh, Canadians provided training and professional development support to, uh, to Afghan security forces, being the Army, Air Force, and police, uh, in order to build uh, capacity and also capability so that um, the Afghans themselves might secure their country mm -hmm. uh, without outside assistance. What made this mission so complicated? What made What made the Canadian presence in Afghanistan, in terms of the military, so complicated? That is um, a very difficult uh, question to answer. I mean, that really is a, is a book unto itself. But um, one could, uh, could certainly argue that the national caveats imposed on uh, NATO member forces by their, their home governments um, complicated, and I would even argue in, in some in instances uh, prevented the conduct of, of operations. Uh, so by this I mean certain member nations did not, did not allow their forces to do certain things, uh, like participate in offensive operations. Uh, this partially, in my opinion at least, uh, explains why the, the bulk of the fighting fell on the shoulders of the Americans, Canadians, British, and Dutch uh, in provinces like uh, Kandahar, Aruzgan, and, uh, and Helmand. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting to note, and I'll just go off on a, on a quick tangent, that... Um, Lieutenant General Charles Bouchard, a uh, Canadian, uh, when he commanded the, uh, the NATO mission in Libya in 2011, uh, encountered much the same thing. Um, he had at his disposal uh, a large number of airframes provided by, uh, by NATO member nations, but only a percentage of them could actually be used for uh, the difficult work of the air campaign, um, again, owing to international caveats. Uh, the number of aircraft that uh, he had in theater and the number of aircraft available for sorties were, were actually um, not equal, uh, not even close. So you're always fighting with one arm tied behind your back. Absolutely. And and national caveats has become quite a, a complicating issue within within NATO. Yeah. We'll get to your book in a second. What is your sense, uh, what is your sense at this point of the state of scholarship on Afghanistan? Recognizing, of course, that the war barely ended well, the Canadian presence barely ended six years ago, um, and that our presence almost, uh, our military presence almost 10 years ago. But what's your sense of the literature? I, I, I hate to call it scholarship. What's your sense of the literature on Afghanistan? Are you, are you satisfied with the books that have come out? Um, what's your general sense of the Canadian take on that war at this point? Um, so, so what I'd like to do, um, if you don't mind, is to, uh, to engage in a little bit of uh, compare and contrast. Sure. Um, during and uh, immediately after the, uh, the First World War, the, um, the historiographical tradition at that time uh, certainly emphasized uh, great men and great events. The common soldier in the trenches uh, just didn't receive very much attention at all. Now, if we jump forward a century to, uh, to Afghanistan, more or less, yeah. um, the opposite seems to be generally true. Um, in Canada in the moment, at the moment, uh, I would certainly suggest that... Uh, we know more about the, the soldiers themselves, both men and women, I should add, 
um, than the battles that they fought in or the, the generals that commanded them. Um, of course, this is a, a broad generalization, um, but by and large, you know, the soldier uh, and his or her experiences has been the, uh, the focus of both professional and, uh, and amateur historians alike. Um, so quite a, a contrast between uh, 100 years ago. So we've got a take on the, the, uh, the boots on the ground kind of perspective, and we're missing more of a, a political diplomatic history of Canada and Afghanistan, is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that. Uh, there, there are a, a number of works that uh, address the, the upper level, if, if we can call it that, the, uh, the political strategic level, but uh, certainly there is more. That, that addresses the, the tactical and the, the operational level. Um, the form that the personal writings uh, take uh, certainly varies considerably. There's, uh, there's first-person accounts uh, by the soldiers themselves, like, uh, like my book and their own words. Yes. There's a number of memoirs, uh, like Jody Middick's Unflinching. There are uh, third-person accounts about the soldiers, uh, like Robert Fowler's um, Combat Mission Kandahar. Uh, there are more academic narrative treatments of certain topics, uh, like Colonel Ian Hope's uh, Dancing with the Dushman, that discover, uh, discusses uh, command and counterinsurgency operations. Uh, and finally, I, I guess there are um, the standard historical treatments of specific events uh, where the experiences of soldiers um, on the ground are added to the narrative to add context, color, and explanation. Um, the example I would give there would be uh, Michael Friscolanti's uh, Friendly Fire. So, um, so overall, I think there, there's quite a literature developing around uh, Afghanistan, and uh, I hope very much that the uh, the trend continues. Well, indeed, uh, that's very encouraging. Uh, very encouraging to hear you talk that way. Now, let's turn to your book. Um, what prompted you and your colleagues to bring this book together, this project together? So, at the time, um, I was working at the uh, the Canadian Forces Leadership Institute, um, as you mentioned. Uh, which was responsible for writing uh, both leadership and profession of arms doctrine for the military, uh, as well as well as developing uh, materials that would illustrate and uh, support both. It was suggested at some point that um, the institute could illustrate uh, desired behaviors and attitudes in military members by uh, by reproducing citations for various honors that uh, that people had received over the years. Um, I quickly countered that uh, that this might not, might be misguided uh, for two reasons. Uh, the first is that uh, citations are publicly available already, um, so why would we uh, waste time and, and effort uh, reproducing them? Uh, and two, uh, these citations are usually so brief that one only ever gets a, a sense of what an honor was given for rather than the, uh, the whole story. So after a lot of discussion... Um, we decided that we could uh, best illustrate the, uh, the four Canadian military values of duty, loyalty, integrity, and courage um, by interviewing recipients of honours for Afghanistan, uh, particularly those that had earned the, uh, the nation's highest honours, uh, the bravery decorations and the military valour decorations. And so what was your method? You, you, you sat down with them and recorded their, uh, their stories? In a nutshell, yes. I will, uh, I'll, I'll walk you through our, our methodology. Before I walk you through the methodology, though, um, I should mention that uh, that everything that we, we did, uh, my team and I, uh, was meant to earn the uh, the trust of our interviewees um, and to protect them from further harm. Um, we had to earn their confidence, so we were uh, very deliberate and methodical in our approach. Uh, this resulted in the book taking a, a very long time to produce, but uh, but that to me was immaterial. Um, others would uh, would not agree, but uh, for me, protecting and treating the 
uh, interviewees with uh, respect was was utmost. Um, we only had one shot at this, so we had to get it right, and uh, I think in the end we did. So um, we contacted them directly through letter mail um, and purposely avoided the uh, the chain of command in order to prevent um, any pressure being exerted on them to uh, to give an interview. If they said no, uh, then nothing more was said. We we didn't pester. We we thanked them for their time and, and just left it at that. Um, but if they said yes, and about 75% said yes, which I, I think was a fairly high um, response rate, the interview was uh, conducted on, on their turf. So uh, so that meant we traveled to them. We ended up going from Calgary, Alberta to, to St. John's, Newfoundland. We really did travel the country. Uh, the team that uh, conducted the interview was usually um, myself and, uh, and a military colleague. And they were recorded? Yes, they were. So we, we recorded them, um, and then we had them transcribed by a contractor. Um, the transcripts of the, of the interviews were then um, massaged by another contractor into the beginnings of a, of a readable chapter. We didn't want to have, or we didn't want to produce um, a back-and-forth question-and-answer type transcript. Um, so once we had the, the rough beginnings of, uh, of a chapter, we um, massaged that uh, even further, adding, deleting, um, whatever we needed to do to, to make it flow. Um, but before we, we pronounced it finished, we ha- allowed the, the interviewee, the, the person that gave us the interview in the first place, to, to have a look, to make comments, to correct our, our errors, if any had seeped in. Everything that we published, um, every word, was was approved by the the interviewee, so they know exactly um, what is uh, what has been published. So it's a very careful approach. It's a very careful approach. Um, I should mention that the the process of contacting the the interviewees, arranging the interview, developing the chapter uh, was conducted twenty three separate times because we in, ended up interviewing twenty three individuals. Um, so that was the the first stage of of getting the manuscript ready. Um, after that, it had to go for, for two separate reviews. Um, one was for operational security. Um, we needed to ensure that uh, we didn't inadvertently uh, reveal information that, uh, that might be of value to, to present or, or future adversaries. Um, concurrently, the, uh, the manuscript also underwent a, a legal review to ensure that we were not violating uh, individuals' privacy. So for, uh, for operational security, the, uh, the solution was quite easy. Uh, we simply removed offending passages uh, from the text. Usually these details that were mentioned um, in passing were, were not really critical to the narrative, so they could be, uh, be easily removed. For the legal uh, side of the thing, um, that was a little bit more complicated. Um, what we ended up doing was uh, sending letters to everyone who was mentioned in the book, uh, informing them uh, simply of this fact. Uh, we had to let them know that uh, that details about their service uh, overseas uh, were being made public, and um, sometimes the uh, the details of their wounding as well. Uh, for those soldiers who were mentioned in the text um, and died as a result of of uh, service in Afghanistan, we uh, identified their their next of kin. Uh, we wanted to let the families know that uh, this book was coming out. We certainly wanted to avoid the situation where families stumbled across the uh, the accounts of the of the death of their loved ones uh, simply by accident. Uh, we really needed to uh, to give them a heads up. Many of the families uh, appreciated the time that we took to uh, to reach out to them and to uh, to reassure them that the the accounts of their loved ones' death uh, were treated respectfully in the book, and uh, and certainly nothing was uh, was glorified. 
Craig, I, I wonder if people listening to you might think that this has become a sanitized history. Is that, is that a fair... How would you respond to that? This is not sanitized. It is very raw, uh, and, and that was done on purpose. Um, we wanted to portray the, the situation in Afghanistan as, as closely as we could, um, and to the degree that the, the interviewees felt comfortable. Um, it is very raw. Uh, there is some, some passages that are, are quite difficult to read, and again, those were, were left in for, for a very specific reason. Um, there were a couple instances where we made a judgment call and removed some descriptions of certain things, uh, simply because the family of the soldier who had died uh, would not appreciate reading that. Mm. So, yes, to a certain extent it was sanitized, but uh, that happened on, on a very few rare occasions. What about what about the... the not, I'm not going to say conclusion. What about the, the, the sense that this might be an official history? Is it an official history? No, it's not an official history. No, uh, Canada will probably write the official history of Afghanistan in, in 2050 or 2060 if, uh, <laughs> okay. if, if past experience is, is any guide. Right. Um, no, this, this is not um, an official history. It certainly doesn't have that, uh, that blessing to it. So it's not official and it's not sanitized. What makes your book so important then? I think the value of this book lies in the fact that the historical record now has uh, 23 very detailed first-person accounts of significant events that, uh, that happened in Afghanistan. Uh, we captured these stories very soon after they had occurred, um, in some instances a few months, in other instances a few years, uh, but certainly before they had uh, much time to, uh, to change in people's minds. Mm, that's important. Again, I'd, I'd like to do a little bit of uh, compare and contrast uh, again sure. with the uh, with the First World War. Yeah. Um, in the 1960s, uh, CBC interviewed uh, numerous First World War veterans for a uh, commemorative radio program called uh, Flanders Fields. The quality of those interviews, uh, in my opinion, was uh, was quite poor. Um, although they contained some some good nuggets of information, and I've certainly used those interview transcripts in my own work. Um, the interviewers uh, were not particularly skilled in what they were doing, um, and they seemed to lack a, a very good understanding of uh, Canadian operations during the war. Mm -hmm. um, the veterans, for their part, um, on the other hand, uh, were by this time old, um, in their 70s, 80s. There's even a few, I think, in their 90s by then. Um, they had forgotten a lot. Some of their memories remained quite vivid, but uh, for the most part, they had trouble recalling uh, key moments of the of the war, the sequence of events, the people involved. Um, so, because of that, the the quality of the resulting interview was was not as good as it could have been. Um, had these interviews been done in 1920 or even in 1925, I think the radio program would have been uh, would have been much richer. I think you're I think you're absolutely right, and it's I, th I think that's what makes your book special. There, there's also some um, discussion in the historical literature that uh, that argues that CBC and the, the not-so-good interviewers um, had a very specific agenda in mind when they embarked on this project and, and strove throughout its length to, uh, to prove it. Um, we, on the other hand, uh, really had no agenda uh, other than, than capturing these stories warts and all. Um, 
we had nothing in mind that, that we really wanted to prove. Um, and besides, the uh, the stories were so powerful in and of themselves that the, the lessons they offered were, were crystal clear without any ulterior uh, prompting or massaging from us. So, Craig, what, what surprised you the most about these accounts that you've collected? I had no illusions going into into this project that the the stories would be intense and difficult. Um, listening to these individuals during the the interview recount their experiences was uh, was simply exhausting. Um, I felt physically and emotionally drained at the end of the session. Um, I can't imagine what it was like to actually have done it. Mm. It was hard enough just to just to listen to it. Um, but what surprised me the most, I think, was the interviewees' honesty, their candor their willingness to talk about uh, very personal experiences um, to what were essentially strangers. And you have to remember, we were a bunch of civilian research weenies from Kingston <laughs> traveling the country um, asking, asking battle-hardened soldiers to tell us about you know, a particular day in question. Uh, and that goes back to why I think establishing trust and respect and rapport was, was so important uh, at the outset. The uh, the accounts these soldiers are giving you, as you said earlier, are raw. They're more immediate. They're still fresh in the memory. And that gives it all the more power. Absolutely. Um, we wanted to catch them soon rather than later, mm-hmm. um, simply because we we didn't want time to change the the memory of of the day in question. Yeah. When I speak about their their honesty and and their their willingness to talk about what is essentially trauma. Um, I think there's a number of reasons why the, the soldiers were really so so open to myself and my team. Um, for some, it was it was simply cathartic, and it was part of the uh, the healing process. Um, in other words, they they needed to to talk about it in order to come to terms with the event and and what had happened. Um, I had one soldier tell me, and I'm paraphrasing here, that uh, the only reason I'm talking to you is because it helps me deal with the situation. Um, mm. Words to that effect. I want to finish off, Craig, with one question. Uh, the book focuses only on the first six years of the war. What about the rest of the war? Are you uh, and your team mobilized, interested in, in, in pursuing the story of Canada in Kandahar and, and, and the last few years of active combat to 2011? What, what's, what about that story? The team is interested, but is, is no longer mobilized. Um, I've since left... Uh, Left the government. My uh, my colleagues that I worked with have uh, have e- either retired or or moved on to uh, to other positions. So, um, if we were back together and and had the the opportunity, then then absolutely. Um, that being said, there there is very much a need for a second volume that covers the years mm-hmm. two thousand seven to either two thousand eleven with the end of the of the mission or up until uh, two thousand and fourteen when we when we end. Um, there's a lot that goes on in the the latter half of the uh, of the of the mission that really needs to be captured for the historical record. Um, I encourage someone to to take it on. Uh, oh. Now now's the time before you know, our veterans become too old to remember before they slip away before they they lose their memories. I I, I hope you get mobilized again to do this kind of work because I think that uh, in their own words is a fabulous a fabulous collection. Thanks for being my guest today. Well, uh, Patrice, it's been my pleasure. But uh, before we go, uh, I would like to to take a few moments to uh, to thank my team yes, that has uh, yes. has helped me with uh, within their own words. Um, I said throughout our, our interview today that uh, it was my book, but it really wasn't. It was uh, very much a team effort. Um, Melanie Dennis, uh, Justin Wright, and uh, Chief Petty Officer Second Class Paul Pellerin 
uh, also contributed uh, very meaningfully to the uh, the book, and it's uh, it's theirs as as much as it is mine. You're right to underline it. Nice talking to you, Craig. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Patrice. It's been my pleasure. Craig Mantle is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and one of the co-editors of, in their own words, Canadian Stories of Valor and Bravery from Afghanistan, 2001 to 2007. It is published online by the Department of National Defense, but you can download the PDF of the book on the Champlain Society website, champlainsociety.ca. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 25, 2020, and is produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.